Good morning, everybody. How you doing today? Good to see you. We just wanted to warn you that you're a target of identity theft, um, in case you didn't pick that up from the video today. It's very ominous, isn't it? We're all targets. That's awesome. We're in a series right now called Identity Theft, and we're looking at the topic of finding out who we are in God and the reality that all of us are actually under attack in this area of identity. How many of you have ever been victimized by identity theft? You've ever experienced that? Raise your hand up. Let me see. A lot of people. I also have uh, experienced identity theft. Uh, I can't believe somebody wanted to be me, but they did, <laughs> apparently. Um, there's a survey that came out in uh, 2015 that said 41 million Americans have actually been victimized or been a victim of identity theft. 41 million uh, victims of identity theft. But the reality is that it's actually more than that. There's 100% of us have been victims of identity theft because the enemy wants to steal your identity. He wants to conceal, to distort your identity because who you are is the foundation of your future. This morning, I want to talk to you on this topic of identity theft and, and talk about how our identity comes before our destiny. This, this uh, fact that who we are is the foundation of our future, that we have to know who we were made to be and who we are before we can do and be who God has called us to be before we can fulfill our destiny. Destiny is kind of a fancy word for who you are and what you were made to, to do. Who, uh, who you are, your identity, and then leads to your destiny, what you were made for, what you were made to accomplish. But nobody wakes up and says, uh, I'm going to be victimized by identity theft today, right? It's always a surprise, isn't it? It's always kind of under, under the surface it's, it's happening. Uh, when it happened to Bethany and I, we were in Seattle and that was our first mistake because Portland's a better city. That's not up for debate. That's just a fact. Can I get an amen? You know, there's this whole Portland-Seattle rivalry, right? I'm Portland all the way. I don't know about anybody else, but that's, that, that fell flat. That was our, that was our thing there. But uh, we were in Seattle working up there, and I remember uh, we got in this cab, and the, the cab driver gave us the serious heebie-jeebies. And that's Greek for super weirdo. Um, the heebie-jeebies. Like, we got in, and we were just like, this guy gives us the creeps. And then three days later, I got a call from our friends at Visa, and they said, excuse me, Mr. Schmelzer. I'm sure they butchered my last name. Uh, Mr. Schneider, Schnurzner, Schnurzley. Uh, did you buy $300 worth of phone cards in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia? Yes, I did, actually. No, I did not. And, of course, they knew I didn't buy phone cards in Saudi Arabia. I was a victim of identity theft. Now, the funny thing about identity theft is that it's always someone trying to steal value and worth from you, right? Nobody wants to steal your identity to pay your mortgage. That'd be an awesome call. Hi, is this uh, Mr. Schmelzer? Yes, it is. Hey, I just want to let you know someone actually broke into your Wells Fargo mortgage account and paid your house off. <laughs> well, you don't let them do that. No, like take my identity. But Identity theft is about taking something that's worth something. It's about taking value from you, stealing your money. And when the devil practices identity theft, he's after something that is valuable. Maybe you struggle with insecurity, inadequacy, feeling worthless, feeling like I'm nothing. I don't have anything to offer, anything to provide. The, the, I'm telling you, here to tell you today, that's not true. It's a lie. You have great worth and value. You are made in the image of God. And identity theft is always to steal value for you. Jesus talked about the enemy of our soul, about Satan in John chapter 10, verse 10. He said, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. And in contrast, Jesus said, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying 
life. I definitely want what's behind door number two. How about you? The enemy wants to steal from you. He wants to kill you. He wants to destroy you. And one of the best ways he can do that is by getting to you at the area, the foundation level of your identity. The devil wants to get you at that level because if he can thwart your identity, he can abort your destiny. If the enemy can thwart you at the level of identity and stop you from discovering who you are and who God's made you to be, then he can, he can stop you from accomplishing what God has called you to accomplish. He can stop you from becoming all that God has intended you to be. If he can thwart your identity, he can abort your destiny. And that's why it's so important for us to get this identity thing right, to get that foundation laid, to know who we really are in God. Because who we are is the foundation of our future. A lot of times we think that what we do is the foundation of our future, but it's not. Because our doing comes out of our being. Our output comes out of what is on the inside of who we really are. And when that thing is secure, when the identity is right, the action will follow after that. And so who we are is the foundation of our future. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, the Apostle Paul is writing about this idea of identity and the worth and value of, of us as people. And he said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are God's masterpiece. Again, why does the enemy want to steal, kill, and destroy? He wants to mess you up at the identity level because there's worth there. You are a masterpiece of God. And you say, well, I'm not a Christian. Does that mean I'm worthless? No, you are a masterpiece of God, whether you ever become a Christian or not. But becoming a Christian gives you that, reveals that reality to you and ushers you into that new life to enjoy that relationship with God. But you are a masterpiece of God because you're made in the image of God. Apart from whatever faith or religion you follow, you are a masterpiece of God. That's just a fact. That's how it is. God made you. We are God's masterpiece. Sin distorted the image, though. Sin comes in. The enemy wants to, to mess us up. And it goes on in Ephesians 2.10. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. There are two prominent themes in this verse that are here. The first is identity. We are a masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. That's identity. But the second thing that follows from identity is this aspect of destiny. That we are created anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. That sentence is describing your destiny. Every one of us has a destiny. Every one of us was made on purpose, right? And made for purpose. You have a destiny. Maybe you're sitting here going, well, I'm not really good at too, much, too many things and uh, my life doesn't really have much purpose. I'm just kind of sucking oxygen and collecting a paycheck or seeing if I can get, become a level seven magic user on WoW, right? Only a few people understand that reference. Sorry, John, he's just quizzical. Huh? Yeah, I think I saw your jowls shake on that right there. Um, love you, bud. WoW is World of Warcraft. Yeah, and the reason I don't play it, I'll tell you why. Not because I'm like so amazingly mature and above it. I would literally be addicted to that. And I'd be the guy wearing a diaper on there going like, I'm, a, I'm an elf now, you know. My family would never see me again. This, real people, that, I'm not, this is true, right? Where are my millennials at? People get there, right? You think, well, I don't have a destiny. No, God made you for purpose. You were brought into, this, into life. You were brought into creation. You were brought here for purpose. That's your destiny. You have destiny, but it comes out of this place of identity. And so the enemy fights us at that identity level. Because if he can stop you there, you never become who God made you to be. You never do what he's called you to do. I want to tell you a story this morning from the Old Testament. And we're going to go through a lot of scripture. And I'm going to just make some, uh, uh, 
have some analysis, make some observations out of this passage of Scripture. But it comes to us uh, thousands of years ago, this story about a guy named Gideon. How many of you are a little bit familiar with the story of Gideon? How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but you're like, you've never heard anything about this guy, and this is all just totally new to you. I'll set, some, set the stage up and set some backdrop here. So the story of Gideon takes place a couple thousand years ago, and the nation of Israel has come out of slavery in Egypt, and God has led them through this journey. They've been in the wilderness for 40 years, and you've probably heard names like Moses and Joshua, and Moses did his thing, he died. Joshua did his thing, he died. And the people of Israel are living in the land of, of Canaan, and it's modern-day Israel, Palestine area. And they, if you think about it, like with nice, clean borders like we have in the modern world, that's not what it was like. These are tribal areas. And so people identified more with family nations, like we are the, the Schmelzerites, or we are the, you know, what's somebody's last name? The Hansonites, you know? And they would identify in these kind of tribal communities And what would happen at this period of time is that God's people, the nation of Israel, would begin to serve idols. They would intermarry and mingle with the people in the land. And even though God had told them not to do that, they would go into idolatry. They were worshiping false gods. And so God would pass judgment on them and he would allow them to come under oppression from other nations. And they call this the judges cycle. It was a cycle of oppression. And then they would repent and say, God, please forgive us, save us. And God would send a deliverer. That person was a judge. You've heard of Samson, right? It was one of the judges. How many of you have ever heard of Shamgar? That's a cool Bible story. Dude killed like 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Yeah, somebody needs to make an action movie about that. Totally watch it. And just this kind of crazy Wild West period of time. It says in the book of Judges that at that time, every man did what was right in their own eyes. It wasn't an authority. It wasn't this common idea of even right and wrong and That's kind of the backdrop for where this story takes place. And at this point in time, Israel has gone into a cycle of oppression and judgment. And there's this nation called Midian that was a nomadic, kind of a Bedouin group of people that rode camels and had tents and sang Ahab the Arab by Ray Stevens, if anybody knows that song. That's a reference for you, John. Yeah, there you go. Ahab the Arab, she got a burning sand. He's got a camel on his finger, rings on every finger of his hand. Yeah, I don't know. That's all I got. It's a great song, though. So these Bedouins, this nation, Midian, they would come in, and the Bible says in Judges 6 that they were like locusts, and they would come in, and they would pillage the land. And they, they had Israel at this level of just starvation point. And so Israel has cried out to God for deliverance. And that is where we pick up in the story here. They've cried out to God, and this is where God shows up in the story with this man named Gideon. Now, Let me give you the end of the story, not to confuse you. And then I want to fill in the blanks here, how we get to the end. But Gideon goes on to become this mighty judge, this mighty deliverer. He gets a team of 300 guys, starts with a big army. God brings it down to 300. This came before King Leonidas. And uh, Gideon gets 300 guys and they absolutely waste this entire army of the Midianites. Like he goes on to be this incredible hero. But you're going to see that he does not start there. Gideon does not start at this level of a mighty hero, an amazing man of God, powerful, uh, boisterous, and bold, and courageous. Like he starts at the opposite end of the spectrum, and that's where we pick up the story. Go with me to Judges chapter 6, verse 11. We'll throw it up on the screen for you, and I'll show you how Gideon gets to this place because God deals with his identity so that he can release him into his destiny. And I believe the Lord's going to speak to us this morning through his word. It says in Judges chapter 6, verse 11, Then the angel 
of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, not Oprah, Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiezer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say, the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. And the Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. And we'll stop there. And it goes on a little bit. We're going to jump ahead. But Gideon kind of goes back and forth with God. Well, if, if you are who you say you are, prove it to me. You know, I don't know if it's a good idea to argue with God, but Gideon does. And sometimes when you're really insecure, like you just can't buy into the fact that you're something other than what you think or feel, right? And Gideon goes back and forth, but it jumps ahead in verse 25. It says, That night the Lord said to Gideon, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old. He has to be really specific because this is a man. And when you give a man instructions, <laughs> right? What bull was that again? It was the second one, the one that's seven years old. You know, Bertha, that bull. Not Ralph. We need him. No, this is, <laughs> this is for all the guys. We need very specific instructions. When my wife sends me to the grocery store, she has to print out a contract of what I'm supposed to buy. Otherwise, I come back with like, well, I have two pieces of candy and um, drain cleaner. Um, you were sent for bread and milk. Okay. <laughs> Pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar, using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord had commanded. But he did it at night because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and the people of the town. How many of you know, even as we're following God, sometimes we're doing what he says, but we do it in our own way because we're still afraid, right? I, I was laughing about this in the first service. This is how we started the church in the middle of the night. We were kind of like, this could really fail. So we're going we're gonna to start and, and just be kind of secret and private because this really might stink. And if anybody finds out, and then I think Brian Wadman, is Brian here today? Brian? No, he's not here, but Brian posted at the website. And so then we were like public. Hey, we're a real church. <laughs> so then people came. We had people come. Philippe and Deanna came to service. Some of you know them. They've moved down to San Diego. But they came to one of the services. And it was funny when we think about that memory, because all of us that were there at the time were like circling around, like, we're a real church. Come to our church. <laughs> we had, you know, it was just kind of fake. Anyways. Just an observation there. So Gideon goes and does this in the middle of the night. Early the next morning, as the people of the town began to stir, someone discovered that the altar of Baal had been broken down and that the Asherah pole beside it had been cut down. In their place, a new altar had been built, and on it were the remains of the bull that had been sacrificed. The people said to each other, who did this? It's like a parent coming after their kids. Who did this? And after asking around and making a careful search, they learned that it was Gideon, the son of Joash. Bring out your son, the men of the town demanded of Joash. He must die for destroying the altar of Baal and for cutting down the Asherah pole. But Joash shouted to the mob that confronted him, why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. In other words, like, come at me, bro. <laughs> right? 
If Baal truly is a God, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. In other words, if Baal's a real God, Baal needs to do his own business, right? Why does he need you guys running around doing everything? Like let Baal defend himself. And then from then on, it says Gideon was called Jerubbaal, Jerubbaal, which means let Baal defend himself because he broke down Baal's altar. Now, what we see here in this passage of scripture, I'm going to go through and, and highlight some details that I think will help it be clear to us as modern readers looking into a very ancient passage of scripture. But one of the things that we need to see is that Gideon is going through a metamorphosis where God is dealing with him at the level of identity. And so he begins to step out in the area of his destiny. You see, for a lot of us, we want our destiny to happen so that it will validate our identity. But God does something in a different way. God deals with you in the inner place before he lets you loose in the public place. God deals with you at the level of your identity before he releases you into your destiny. Come on, somebody. See, maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, if I had a chance to show people what I was good at, if I could show, you know, people come to church sometimes and, they, and they're gifted and they want to show other people that they're gifted. That's great. Man, we love gifted people. Get in line. Why? Because God wants to deal with identity. Does God want to use your giftedness? Absolutely, but not before he establishes your character. Not before he establishes your identity. Why? Because God cares more about you than what you can do. God cares more about you, your soul, your health, your family. He cares more about you than what you can do, even though God gave you those gifts. So man, your gifts are going to shine, but it starts with getting right in the place of identity. And Gideon is getting right in the area of identity in this passage. It starts off and we find Gideon doing something that he shouldn't have been doing in a place he shouldn't have been. Gideon is doing something called threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, if you don't understand the context of this, it will, it'll seem, it won't be as rich and as vivid. Let me explain something to you. Thousands of years ago, they would build in a town or a village in, in ancient Israel, they would build what was called a threshing floor, and it would typically be built up on a hill. It would be 20 to 30 feet in diameter, either made of wood or stone. And they would take all the grain and they'd put it on these, these threshing floors that were well-known public place, usually on a hilltop. And they would attach a threshing sledge to oxen, probably the, you know, the, the bull that he killed. He knew which one it was. Uh, he wasn't using it anymore because he wasn't doing the right thing. And they'd put it on the, the threshing sledge and it would drag over this grain. And then they would take what's called a winnowing fork, which is a big rake. And they'd put it in there and they'd throw it up in the air and the wind would blow away the chaff. It would blow away the husks and the heavy grain would fall back on the threshing floor. And so there was, there was a lot of aspects of threshing grain, threshing the wheat that, that happened in a public place. It was up where the wind could blow. Now a wine press is the opposite kind of a thing. The wine press would be a stone cistern type of a thing dug down into the ground. Uh, the, and that says, this t the text tells us that's why Gideon is there because he's hiding. And he's in this wine press trying to thresh the wheat it wasn't working very well. And the angel shows up and is like, hey, excuse me, um, how's, this, how's this working out for you? Let me just tell you right now, when you don't know who you are, you have a wrong idea of who you are, you'll, you'll do things you shouldn't do in ways you should not do them. You don't, you don't thresh wheat in a wine press, you thresh wheat on a threshing floor. But there were circumstances that made him feel inadequate, afraid. He was terrified of Midian. He was terrified of these people that would come. And so he was in this place he shouldn't have been. Concealed, ineffective, not achieving and, and being, not, not, not living the rich and satisfying life 
that Jesus had for him. Let me just tell you right now, if you're struggling in the area of your identity, feeling insecure, inadequate, you're probably threshing wheat in a wine press. Meaning that you're doing some good things, but you're doing them in a place that's not good. It's concealed, it's ineffective because you're afraid of something out there. You're probably afraid of the enemy that wants to steal and kill and destroy. But God is coming today to say something new to you, to give you a new identity, to affirm who you are and who you were made to be. And listen what the angel of the Lord says to Gideon. And I wish my wife would wake me up this way every morning. He says, oh, mighty hero. (laughs) Wouldn't that be amazing? You know, you're just laying in bed and all of a sudden, oh, mighty hero. Yeah. You know, every man, you just immediately feel awesome. And God comes and says, oh, mighty hero. Now think of the irony here. And even to the To this ancient context, we have to try to be back in this moment. Every single person would look at this story about Gideon and laugh because he's not a mighty hero. He's threshing weed in a wine press. He's hiding like a sissy because he's afraid. He's, my son the other day, I said, Jack, don't be a wuss. And he said, what's a wuss? And I had to explain to him. I'm like, don't worry about it. You're not one. So, you know, (laughs) but uh, Gideon is in this place. And God has to come and deal with his identity before he can deliver his destiny. God has to come to him in the secret place. God has to come to him in the hidden place to deal with his identity before he can reveal Gideon's destiny in the public place. Maybe for you, you feel like your life's on the shelf. You ever felt like this before? Oh, my life's just on the shelf. Good. Because that means God is doing something inside of you When God is working on you in secret, that's so he can do something in public. When God is doing something on the inside, that's so God can release you on the outside. Come on, somebody. You know, I remember when I was a younger man. I'm still a young man. Thank you very much. I do have a lot of gray in my beard, but I'm young. I'm fit. I'm fresh. And uh, (laughs) feeling good today. I had two cups of coffee. All right. Come on, put another shot in my coffee, Dutch bros. But when I was a younger man, I was about 18, 19 years old, I would feel so frustrated because I felt like my life was on the shelf and God had put all these gifts inside of me and passion inside of me to make a difference, right? You ever feel this way? Like my life matters, I just thought I can do something with my life. And I remember there was all these moments where I was shelved. I remember specifically there was moments where my little sister got to preach and I didn't get to preach. Dang it, you know? Here's my little sister, and she was the youth pastor, and I was just like a dude at the church. It's like, my little sister, you know? And I'm on the shelf, on the shelf, on the shelf. And I would talk to my intern director, Pastor John, and he'd be like, man, that's great. Be thankful. You're on the shelf. He was Chicano, so he'd be like, hey, bro, you're on the shelf, dude. You know what I'm saying? Right? That's how he talked. He was awesome. His nickname was The Shanker. That tells you anything about his mercy and grace gift that he operated in. God used the shanker to deal with my character, deal with my identity. He said, be thankful when your life's on the shelf because that means God is, is preparing you. He's seasoning you. God wants to deal with you in the inner place. God wants to do that inner work. He wants to, to root out the insecurity, to root out the inadequacy, to root out the fear so that he can reveal you. But God comes to you in the secret place and says, oh, mighty hero, even though everything about your life looks like you're a zero at that moment. But see, God really sees you. God really knows you. He's the only one that really knows you, that really sees you. And he wants to deal with our identity before he can deliver our destiny. And then in verse 16, it says, The Lord turned to him and said, 
Because Gideon's kind of like, ah, what about God, you said this? And, and Gideon tries to make it about us, right? He tries to hide in the group. He says, well, God, what about Israel? And you're going to save us. And God says, hold on, I'm not dealing with Israel. I'm dealing with you. I didn't call Israel to save Israel. I called Gideon to save Israel. Isn't it easier just to kind of try to fade back into the background? And well, we, I love when people come up and say, we've been talking. Well, who's we? Because I'm not listening to it unless we get names on this, right? Everybody's welcome to criticize, but put a name on it, right? If you're going to, don't be Bible boy 243 and criticize people online. Like step out and put your name on it, right? If you're going to slam somebody, right? Spirit sister 349. No, put your name on it. I don't know what I'm talking about right now. Anyways, let's move on. So, <laughs> oh, I just put the fun back in dysfunctional. But God comes and he says to Gideon, Gideon's making excuses. And in verse 16, he says, the Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. In other words, I'm not talk, we're not doing, dealing with excuses. I'm dealing with you and what you need to do. You need to obey. I'm not dealing with, do you agree? Do you feel up to it? Do you feel like now your self-esteem is at a level where you can do what I've called you to do? Here's the word, go. You know what that word is in ancient Hebrew? It means go. You know, I'm just illuminate the text for it. It means go. It means get off your dead butt and move. Get out of this wine press, Gideon, and go do something. Because I put something inside of you, and now it's time to let that get outside of you. It's time to go. Go. With the strength you have, I am sending you. You know, we give God all these excuses about us, but it's not about us. It's not about how weak you are. Oh, I'm so weak. I'm so insecure. I have so much fear and I can't go and do what God's told me to do. It's not about you. Or I'm so great. I'm ready. I'm ready to put me in the game, coach. It's not about you. It's about who's sending you. It's about who's behind you. The authority is not in your identity, whether you have a good identity, bad or whatever. The authority is in the word of the Lord. There's a story in the New Testament where Jesus is on a journey. He's walking through and a Roman centurion comes up and says, Jesus, will you speak a word? Just say a word because my servant is sick in bed at home, wherever that's at. And if you'll just speak a word, he will be healed. And Jesus is like, whoa. He says, that is the kind of faith I've not even seen in Israel. Even God's people didn't have faith like that. And the centurion says, let me explain, Jesus, why I know this will happen. Because I'm a man under authority and I'm a man in authority. I have people under me, servants and slaves and soldiers that I say go and they go. And I say come and they come. So if you'll just speak a word, my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, that guy gets it. That's what faith is. It's not about the centurion. It's not about the servant. It's about Who's in authority here? And when God comes and says, go with the strength you have, he doesn't mean go when you're ready. He means get up with whatever you are in at that moment. You know, maybe God says, go, and it's the middle of the night. You go. Well, I'm not ready. I have to get my handkerchief and I got to do this. No, go. You got to move, right? Go with the strength you have. Think about all of God's heroes in the Bible. They were all zeros. Gideon's not making it up. He's a nobody. He is the least clan and the least family and the least in his father's house. Nothing externally about him says this guy's dialed in for success. And God says, I'm going to use a nobody and make him a somebody. God called David. He was the least son of his father. He was a shepherd. He couldn't even wear the king's armor. And, and God used David to kill a giant to save Israel. Come on. God used David to be a king. God found his prince in a pasture 
God will use you, but you have to go when he says go with the strength you have. Jesus called 12 disciples from different backgrounds. Peter was an uneducated fisherman. In Greek, in the New Testament, it literally says that some of the Pharisees called Jesus' disciples idiotes. You can translate that for yourself. They were idiots. Anybody with me here? Disciples. (laughs) Maybe you're an idiot, uneducated, not smart, not sharp. And God comes and says, go with the strength you have. Because why? Because I am sending you. It's all about who's standing behind you. It's all about who's standing behind you. I remember one time I was on a bus. We were on a church trip and this guy who was really an idiotus, he was bullying me. And uh, this guy liked to pick on me and he was not nice. And anyways, I was, I was just a little kid. I wasn't a you know, tall, handsome, strapping man as I am now. I was in my husky phase, that era between 8 and 30, you know, that <laughs> awkward phase. And um, anyways, I was a little kid and this guy was bullying me. And at one time he, he pushed me and I hit my face against the, the bus seat. And uh, I went to my dad and I had a bloody nose and I'm trying not to cry. You know, I'm trying to be tough. And my dad just kind of put his hand on my shoulder, put me to the side, and then went and talked to that kid, that young man. He was like 15 or something. I just want to tell you right now, who's your backup? Because let me tell you right now, the bully stepped down. Because my dad is a freaky dude, right? He's short, but he's got crazy eyes. <laughs> You'll mess some fools up, you know? And... Uh, I think about it's a picture of God. Go with the strength you have. Come on, son, let's go talk to the bully. God is behind you. God is for you. God is with you. It's not about you. It's about him. Because your authority is not in your identity, good, bad, indifferent, whatever. Your authority is in who's sending you. Go with the strength you have. Now, let me tell you something. In verse 25, after Gideon is wrestling with these questions of identity and, and dealing with it, the Lord comes to him that night, says, take that bull pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it and build this altar. Now, you might read this and think, oh, there's, it's just God's telling him to cut down this pagan shrine. That is what's happening. But let me, let me illuminate this a little bit to you. In, in the land of Canaan, the, they had these pagan views that Asherah or Ashtoreth was the consort, the wife of their god, El or Baal. And so they mixed this religion and they said that Asherah was kind of the the wife to Yahweh, the God of Israel. I won't bore you anymore with history, but some of the history nerds are like, I like this kind of stuff. It's cool. Me and Katrina, we like it. Yeah. And and so uh, the Asherah pole at, at different times was a cultic pole. It was set up, it was carved out of wood and it could be like a pillar or a pole that was set up, but also it could reference a sacred tree. And actually, I can't prove it, so I won't say it's true, but it's possible that that oak tree that they mentioned in the beginning of the passage is actually the Asherah. That was a sacred tree that they would worship, uh, idol worship, false worship. And God tells Gideon specifically, you are to cut that tree down. Now, let me tell you what Gideon's name means. It means hewer or feller of trees. God did not choose him by accident. He came and identified the reason that Gideon was born. You were born to cut something down. You're hiding in the secret place. I'm coming to deal with your identity, but I know your name. When God comes and deals with you, he's gonna call out your true name, who you were made to be. And he says, look, hewer of trees. Hey, lumberjack, get to work. I'm the one that made you. I'm the one that's sending you. And now you're gonna go cut down that tree 
and you're going to burn that wood on the altar and sacrifice to me and everybody's going to know. And all of a sudden, when Gideon was obedient to God and began to walk in the identity that he was formed to walk in, come on, when he began to walk in, the, in that destiny that God had for him, then people took notice. Even though Gideon tried to do it at night and other people came around and said, who did this? And God backed Gideon's play. And then he was known as Drubbable, let Baal plead. And Gideon went on to deliver Israel, went on to be a mighty judge in the nation. But it started in a wine press, hiding out when God came and called him, O mighty hero. What is God calling you to do today? What is God calling you to do? It starts with who you are in God. Who you are is the foundation of your future. Who you are, your identity. There's a lot of voices that want to shape and speak to your identity. You need to tell those voices to shut up. Well, you know, this person thinks that I, I talk too much and this person thinks that I'm this way. So what? You know, let me tell you, there's only one person whose opinion matters about you and it's your father in heaven who formed you. Now, am I saying don't listen to people when they give you feedback? No, no, come on, I'm not saying that. I'm talking about this area of identity, the people that want to put you in a box and say you could never you, you, you come from this family, you could never do X, Y, Z. Oh, you, you, you're the wrong color in this area. Oh, you, you're not rich enough. You can't come to this club. I love people that just break all the, the, the stuff. You know who Nick Vujicic is? Anybody seen him? Nick Vujicic was born with a deformity. He, he has like a, a little flipper and no arms. And the dude is legit. He's legit. He goes on Oprah. He, he encourages people. He's a Christian. He is doing more than most of us are doing with all you know, I was trying to count how many things I got here. <laughs> two arms and two legs. You know, if you got more than that, it might have minor surgery. Um, but Nick Vujicic is doing more with way less than we have. He didn't let anybody say, you can't, you can never. He said, what does God say about me? See, when Gideon began to get a hold of what God was saying about him, he did great things. But he had to not listen to the voices in his head or the voices around him. I want to give you some truth with handlebars, some things you can put into play the rest of this week. Number one, it's so important that you shut those other voices down and that you find your identity in the word of God and that you find your identity with what God says about you. To find out who you really are. Don't let culture set your identity. Don't let Facebook set your identity. Don't let your self-worth get tied to your achievements or your performance or whatever. You find your worth, you find your name, you find your identity in God. And you listen to what he says about you. And then you say that back when somebody says something else. You see, the Lord is only saying mighty hero, mighty hero, mighty hero. When the lie comes out of your own head or from someone else that you're not a mighty hero, you need to say, shut it. Because God says, this is who I am. Come on, in this room are amazing people. There's, this room is loaded with potential. This room is loaded with people that God has placed identity and destiny in. You are a son or a daughter of God. You tell the voices that want to come and tell you that you're something other than that to shut the heck up. If I was really preaching, I would have just gone full H-E double hockey sticks right there. But <laughs> Just watch myself. You tell them to shut the heck up. Why? Because you got to listen to what God says you are. Nothing good is going to come out of listening to a lie. Listen to the truth. So find your identity in the word of God. How do you do that? Get, get in the word. Get in the Bible. Read your Bible every day. 
If, you, if you're just brand new to Christianity or you're not even a Christian yet, you can start in the book of Mark or the book of Matthew and just read the Gospels, the stories about Jesus, and see what Jesus did to people. He elevated women in their status. He elevated sick people. He elevated poor people. He elevated everybody. Everybody got better when Jesus got into their life. Jesus took, um, I'm going to preach my next week's, the weeks, for the week's message, I'll just stop. Let me just say this. Get in the word of God. Let God set your identity. Here's one powerful question to ask. Who does God say that I am? This week, ask that question. Say it in your head. When somebody comes and says, well, you can't do this. You, you, you're not this or you're not that. Who does God say that I am? And let that be the answer that you go with. And if you need to, write that down. So in, on your mirror, you know, in the morning, put a, a post-it note that says, who does God say that I am? He says, I'm redeemed. He says, I'm no longer a slave to sin. No, you're an addict. No, I'm not. I'm redeemed. I'm ransomed. I'm free. Well, you're a junkie. No, I'm not. This is who God says I am. Well, you're a, you know, you're this or that. I'm who God says I am. Find your identity in the word of God. Ask yourself that powerful question, who does God say that I am? Number two, second thing you can do, I want to encourage you to run with champions. Surround yourself with people that will challenge you to be who God says you are, not those that will pull you down from that level. One of the things we like to do as human beings is we like to play this relative game where we, we surround ourselves with people that we feel a little bit superior to, that don't challenge us because then we feel better about ourselves and we really need to do the opposite. Surround yourself with people that make you feel uncomfortable because they're so excellent. Surround yourself with people that call out the destiny of God in your life. People that will not let you make excuses and get away with it. People that will say, no, you're more than that. You are more than you think you are. God has called you a mighty hero, so you don't tell me that garbage of what you're calling yourself right now. Run with champions because you are a champion. Run with heroes because you're called to be a hero. Once heard it said like this, that people are like elevator buttons. They either bring you up or take you down. You experience this? And so you need to ask this question, am I elevating the person I'm working with? Because some people aren't going to elevate you, right? But you're elevating them. Don't, don't throw that person away. Elevate them. We all need to be elevating someone, right? So there's people that I spend time with that I don't, they don't elevate me, but I, I'm elevating them. That's a good relationship. And then there's people that I spend time with that are elevating me. And I don't mean elevating in a self-worth, therapeutic kind of thing. I, I'm talking about elevating me in this idea of who I am in God and what I was made to do. So am I elevating this person or are they elevating me? And if you can't say yes to those, that, that's a relationship you might need to walk away from. Because if it's a person that continually calls you back to what you came from or a person that calls you down to a lower level of destiny than what God made you for, you need to walk away. You need to walk away. This morning, there's people that are here that come every week that are looking for identity, looking for purpose, looking for the questions that you have to be answered. And I'm here to tell you that you came to the right place, that God has brought you to this moment so he could speak a better word over your life, so that he could tell you that you could find your place in his family. There's a verse, I think, in Psalms or, or Proverbs in the Old Testament. It's in Psalms. It says, God sets the solitary in families. God is looking around and he's drawn you to this place so that he could bring you into his family and put his name on you and give you a seat at the table and establish you as a mighty hero to see you accomplish your destiny. But the very first step 
is to give your life to Jesus, to trust him. And very simply, the gospel is this, that every one of us has sinned and fallen short of God's standard. And we deserve the penalty of death and separation from God. But God in his mercy offered his son, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrifice for our sins. And Jesus lived a perfect life, gave his life on a cross 2,000 years ago and died to pay the penalty for your sins so that as you receive that and say, I believe it and I trust in Jesus, that when God sees you, he doesn't see you. He sees what Jesus did and he sees perfection. He sees that you are justified, which is like just as if I never sinned. He sees that you are made righteous in his sight and he gives you that identity and brings you into his family. And that is what you can receive today.